Welcome to this episode. I'm talking with Claire Miles. She's a history blogger and very active on Twitter, which means she is absolutely great to talk to about history. As you know, I love talking to students, scholars, academics, amateurs, history bloggers. Their passion for the topic really stands out and it's so great to learn from them. Also, not all the topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie. I'm a Francophone from Canada. And this is my podcast. I guess now we delve into some great history, eh? talking with Claire. Thank you for being here. And if you can introduce your topic, I'd appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, so yeah, today I'm going to talk about Margaret Haig Thomas, aka Lady Rhonda. And she is, without doubt, the most prominent Welsh woman of the 20th century. Uh, she was a Welsh peeress, an international businesswoman, and an active suffragette. She spent a large portion of her life campaigning for women's right to vote and for women's rights in general and there really is no other woman in Welsh history like her. Excellent thank you. Um, maybe for those who might not be aware of the time period we're discussing do you mind just giving sort of the grand lines of what was going on in this time? Yes certainly so Margaret was born towards the end of the 19th century and she entered a world that was about to undergo quite a lot of change. So a lot of her life and a lot of the work she did was set against the backdrop of World War One and the social upheaval that came before, during and after the war. So before the war, you had the, suffra the suffragettes and the suffragists in the UK campaigning for the right to vote. This sort of activity was put on hold during World War One because obviously there was an international war going on. The war effort took priority. Um, and afterwards, after the war, the life changed in Britain. And the common thread throughout through all of this is for Lady Rhonda is women's rights and the, the cause of advocating women throughout all this massive social upheaval. So that's kind of an overview of the background of which we kind of find Lady Rhonda in. Excellent. Thank you. I guess we can start. So you mentioned she was born just prior to the war. So did you want to start at the beginning and give us a little bit of a taste? <laughs> we might as well start at the beginning, might we? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Margaret was born on the 12th of June, 1883 in London. So she, she actually wasn't born in Wales. She was born in London. Um, and that's because her father, who was an industrialist, um, David Alfred Thomas, he was an MP, a member of parliament. So as you can imagine, he spent a lot of his time in London at the Houses of Parliament. Um, so her father was David Alfred Thomas, who was an industrialist. He'd inherited um, a lot of wealth and a lot of coal mines in South Wales. And his mother was Sybil Haig. And she was, um, this is kind of one of the reasons I got interested in Margaret initially, as well as an amazing life. Her mother, Sybil Haig, actually lived not that far away from me, about 20 miles down the road in a little village called Shambad and Bunnett. So that's how I first got interested um, in this family. Uh, so those were Margaret's parents. And like I said, she was born in London, but the family spent a lot of their time in South Wales, near Carleon, in their home. 
So that's where she started her life. And one of the kind of defining features of her young life was that she was really, really close to her father. Um, he said they were best friends, best buddies, as we say here in Wales, which was quite unusual for the time. He was a really, really hands-on parent. He trained his daughter up in his business eventually, gave her his title. They were really, really close, um, which is quite unusual for you know aristocratic familiar, familial relations um, at the time. That was that relationship was going to become a defining feature in her life. She's got actually quite an interesting young adult life as well. She tried to study history at Somerville College in Oxford, but it wasn't for her. Uh, she left after two terms. There's a bit of a debate between why exactly she left. Some people say it wasn't for her. It wasn't intellectually stimulated enough for her. And um, some others say that perhaps she wanted to get married to find a husband. <laughs> we may never know. But that's how she spent her younger formative years. And there's a really funny anecdote. I think this is quite, quite interesting because if this moment in history turned out differently, there was, there's two major players from history that could have had very different lives. So when she was a young lady, her mother tried to set her up on a blind date with Robert Paden Powell, the founder of the Scouts, the future founder of the Scouts. And it's basically, he was six minutes late turning up to Paddington train station. And uh, she decided that that was six minutes too many and um, stood him up, left. <laughs> and um, I think it's like kind of a flavour from the start. She was a very independent woman by the sounds of it, a very independent young woman. And this was a trend that was, this was a, like a characteristic that was going to carry on throughout her life. Yeah. So after her young adulthood, and she left school. What did what did she do and where did she go? Well, like many other women of her station at the time, uh, she got married. <laughs> uh, she married a member of the Welsh gentry called Humphrey Mackworth. And their money, his, his family's money, were in, were in coal and copper, very traditional Welsh industries. They got engaged in 1907. But it was quite an unusual match because they were very different people. Very much chalk and cheese. You know, like some days you look and see some couples and you're like, why are they together? People were saying that about Margaret and Humphrey because she was very much an independent, go-getting young woman. And he was very much stay-at-home, traditional, land-hunting, gentry type, um, type of person. His families were staunch conservatives politically, whereas her family were liberals and, the, and very much down the other end of the uh, political spectrum. But they got married on the 9th of July, 1908. Um, uh, yes, let's say that Lady Rhonda, instead of playing the traditional dutiful wife that some may have expected of her, she led a very different life and, um, and created a lot of change in the world eventually. Did she have any children with Humphrey? No, no, she didn't. I'll speak about it a bit later on, but eventually... Her and Humphrey actually divorced. He actually gave her an ultimatum. Um, she was spending too much time in London with her various causes, with her fellow suffragettes, with women's rights activists, um, getting involved in politics and so forth. And in the end, he gave her an ultimatum to spend 10 out of 12 months of the year at their family home in South Wales, or, or that was it. And she decided that was it. And, um, and divorced him. She would much rather have her good work and her causes than be married to Humphrey. So did her activism start before then, since it seemed to create tension in the in the marriage? And if so, 
How did she go about starting and what influenced her? That's a really, really interesting question. Um, and it's a good question because it actually looks like it came from her mother and her mother's side of the family. So her mother was um, involved in women's suffrage as well. So perhaps she wasn't as militant as uh, Margaret was to become. So Sybil had been a very political and law-abiding suffragist, and she'd actually sat on the executive of the Women's Liberal Federation. And likewise, Margaret's aunts, Margaret's cousins, there's a lot of prominent suffragists and suffragettes among them. Several of her female relatives were imprisoned um, for various acts during the suffragette campaign. So it's perhaps only natural that Margaret got involved in the cause. And she was she was really, really committed from the start. There's a great quote attributed to her that says that she was really committed to the cause and she wanted to join the Women's Social and Political Union, the one that was founded by Christopher Pankhurst, the militant, you know, the militant suffrage, more militant suffragette one, because she felt that the crust and custom of prejudice was too thick. And I think that's a brilliant quote. And like she really, really got stuck in. She wasn't afraid to, you know, march down the streets of Newport wearing a sandwich board. And there's another great story where she went up into uh, the South Wales Valleys. And I can't remember what town it was exactly with some fellow suffragettes to, you know, preach the cause to the local population. And they actually got a bit nasty and turned into her. And they were literally chasing her down the street. And she was only saved when her mother came round the corner in the family Rolls Royce with some policemen. <laughs> <laughs> so Margaret really, really got stuck in. And I suppose because of her standing in society, the fact she she was the daughter of a minister of parliament, she was the daughter of, of you know, like she was minor aristocracy. She managed to get some of you know the big hitters in terms of the women's suffrage world to come to South Wales and speak to the local people. She managed to help get Emmeline Pankhurst down to Newport to speak in there in 1909. And I know that she also managed to get them. Um, Margaret and Elizabeth Garrett Anderson to speak in Cardiff. So she she was very extremely well connected in terms of women's suffrage and, and the main sort of players in that field. But she's probably most remembered for some of the more controversial things she did while a suffragette. One of the noticeable incidents in Margaret's suffragette career was when um Herbert Asquith was campaigning during the election campaign in 1910 and um, he was going up to St Andrews in uh, Scotland to address a meeting, may I add a men only meeting and um, Margaret decided to jump out on his car as it passed and actually jumped onto the, his bonnet and the police turned up and tried to try to you know try to arrest her and get her off the car and she tried to run away and um, she was rescued by a passing uh, passing golf caddy from the nearby golf course <laughs> and other things as well. She um, The most noticeable one is in June 1913, she actually bombed a letterbox in Newport, which was a major, major crime at the time. So she bombed a letterbox in Newport. And as well as it being quite a violent activity, a very noticeable activity that made the papers, the whole situation, the whole story that, that surrounds it is really interesting too, because based on the evidence that we have, Margaret seems to have been the only Welsh woman sentenced to prison in Wales for suffrage activities. She's the, she's the only one we can definitively say we think she's we think she's the only Welsh lady to go to a Welsh prison 
because of suffrage activities. So was it the bombing of the mailbox? She got caught and that's what caused that? Yeah, so a witness saw her put the um, put the small bomb into the letterbox um, and she was um, detained by the police, um, arrested, obviously had to go to court. Her father, because of his standing, he offered to help try get her off, but Margaret said, no, you know, please don't do that. I, you know, I'm doing it for the cause sort of thing. So she went to court. Um, she was fined £10 and £10 costs, um, and she was sentenced to a month in jail in Usk. And she went to jail, and while she was there, she went on hunger strike in protest. And But she was released on the sixth day of her term instead of serving the whole month, uh, because there, that year the government had passed what became known as the Cat and Mouse Act. Basically, suffragettes would go into prison and they were going on hunger strike. And this was created, the government felt bad press for them because because obviously suffragettes were suffering in prison and the governments were getting flack for it. So the Cat and Mouse Act, as it came to be known, it allowed prisoners to be released on licence on health grounds. So basically, when, when these ladies went on hunger strike, when it went a bit too far, they used this act to send the ladies home so they wouldn't irretrievably, you know, make themselves ill or even perhaps die. But the, the caveat was that once they were a bit better, they had to go in and serve the rest of their term, the rest of their prison term. So Margaret got released because of this cat and mouse act. And on the day her license expired, the day she was supposed to go back into prison, into jail, her fine was mysteriously paid. And it's still not clear to this day who paid that fine whether it was her husband, whether it was her dad. She did make a comment later on in life that somebody had paid it against her wishes and she didn't want, she wanted to go back to to jail. She didn't want to stay out, but stay out she did. So after all this activity with the suffragettes, was that done for her or did she decide to do more? Well, she did a bit more, but... um, We've got to bear in mind that that happened in 1913, in the summer of 1913. And in 1914, we've got World War One starting. Um, so that really put a stop on suffrage activity for a lot of people. There, there was suffragists, there, were, there was variations in thinking amongst the suffragists about should they continue their campaigning during the war. But a lot of people felt that um, it was more patriotic to you know, put things to aside maybe for a little while and concentrate on the war effort. And Margaret actually experienced this life-changing event that made her throw herself into the war effort after she got through it. And it, it was a really, really life-changing event for her. So in May 1915, she um, she left the UK. She went off on a 10-day voyage um, by ship to New York to join her father, who was working over there. And um, they often did that. They often went on joint work trips together. But like I said, they they were extremely close. And, and her father, D.A. Thomas, was basically training her up to take over the business. And together, on the 1st of May, they decided to come back, decided to leave New York and travel back to the UK on, the, on a ship known as the Lusitania. And for people who know this um, know this period of history. The Lusitania is a very, very famous ship, but for all the wrong reasons, unfortunately. So what the um, passengers didn't know was that that ship, the Lusitania, was also carrying munitions for war efforts. And 
it was a potential target for enemy forces. And on the 7th of May, at uh, 10 past two in the afternoon, just off the southwest coast of Ireland, the ship was struck by a torpedo fired by a U-boat. And it took about 18 minutes to sink in total, they say. And Margaret, Margaret didn't get onto a lifeboat. She didn't get clear. Apparently, according to her, her, her recollections and her memoirs, she was actually initially started to be sucked down with the ship as it went down. And she was eventually picked up three hours later by a rowing boat by people who come to help. And they, the people that found Margaret actually thought she was dead when they found her. They transferred her body to um, a patrol steamer. And eventually somebody realised, oh, this lady's not, not dead. She's actually just unconscious. And in the meanwhile, her dad and his secretary that had been travelling with them, they'd actually made it to a lifeboat. and. They were back on land in Ireland were thinking that Margaret was dead. But luckily, they were reunited <laughs> eventually. But as you can imagine, going through that sort of experience, it, we can't even imagine it nowadays. We, it was totally and utterly life-changing, in my opinion. The, the sinking of the Lusitania was a major disaster. And it's also very critical in terms of the history of World War One because many historians agree that the sink of the Lusitania, there was a lot of American people on there. There was a lot of children on there, on that ship. Um, the multimillionaire Alfred G. Vanderbilt, the American multimillionaire, he was on there as well. Nearly 1,200 people died. And the sinking of the ship had a huge impact on public opinion in America, very understandably. And it was a major factor in America eventually getting involved in World War One. But yeah, that moment was, it really changed how people saw Margaret as well. And I have to admire her because she actually was, after that, she, she got back on ships and went on sea voyages again. And I wouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> she was a very, very strong lady. Yeah, it seems as though she did so much in such a short period of time. Yes. And um, in some ways, the sinking of the Lusitania really made her kind of like a minor celebrity. She was actually like quoted in life jacket manufacturers adverts and so forth. Like, so she was quite, she's used as quite a bit like a high profile figure to kind of like speak out about, about the event. And she really, really devoted herself to the war work after that and her achievements during World War One. Everyone did their bit and Margaret definitely did her bit for the war as well. She helped organise placements for 800 Belgian refugees in Monmouthshire. And um, she became Women's National Service Commissioner for Wales in Monmouthshire. So what that means is she was given responsibility for organising women's war work and recruiting women volunteers to work um, in various posts during World War One. I don't know about Canada, but over here in the UK, people, when we mention the Land Army, they automatically think of World War Two with the Land Army um, recruiting female volunteers to go work on farms to replace the male labour that's been, you know, conscripted into the army. But the Land Army was actually established in World War One in 1917. And Margaret played a crucial role in going around like the South Wales markets, talking to local farmers and, you know, finding people to go work on their farms. Um, she also uh, recruited women clerks to go work in France to, you know, help with the logistics behind the war over there. And she placed hundreds, if not thousands of women from Wales in these critical posts to help with the war effort. And by the end of the war, she'd actually uh, risen to become chief controller of women's recruitment in the Ministry of National Service. So she was in charge of all women's recruitment. 
for the for all of Britain. And I don't know, obviously, I never knew her personally, but she must have been a very capable woman to achieve all that. And I imagine that the skills that she'd learned from her father and learned from helping manage his business empire really, really helped her in that respect. Absolutely. Was she in charge of other people? Is that how it works? Yeah. So, um, well, initially, when she was the um, Women's National Service Commissioner for, for Wales, that she was, she was a bit more on her own there. She was a bit more lower down the ranks and it was very much her, her job to go, to kind of do it herself. She didn't have so many resources at hand. But by the end of the war, because she'd risen up quite a few grades, shall we say, she was responsible for managing a lot of people and overseeing work across the whole of Great Britain. So she was in charge of women's recruitment across the whole of the nation, which is quite a big task. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Like the logistics of it are mind-boggling. So, yeah, like I said, I really think that her background must have helped her in that, in terms of the organisational skills she must have um, had to acquire for it, the people skills. I think her business training would have really helped her in that. So have you mentioned all of the industries that she touched? You said, you know, some of the farming and some of getting the women involved and recruiting them. What else did she do besides that? Did she touch any other industrial stuff? Oh, yeah. <laughs> she touched a lot of industrial stuff. Um, yeah, so that was, that, that's kind of the sphere that Margaret operated in during World War One. And while that was happening, while she, World War One was going on and while Margaret was doing her war work, her father had, um, he'd been given a peerage in 1916. And, in the New Year's Honours list for his war work, and he'd also be made a member of the Privy Council. He eventually became a food controller during World War One, so he was responsible for all the, the, the like managing the food supplies of the entire country, making sure everyone had enough to eat, which was, as you can imagine, a major job. But because he'd entered this high office, this high public office, basically he had to resign his his directorships from his businesses. So at the same time as while Margaret was doing her war work she had to step up and take a leading role in her family business at the very same time. So her father, his main background was the coal industry. And um, he was a major coal magnate in South Wales. And he's kind of remembered in, <laughs> in, in that sphere. He managed multiple collieries and basically he made them work to get the, a bit better so they didn't compete against each other so much. He's act, I must admit, I'm not an expert in coal history and coal industry history, but he's quite a pivotal figure in modernising um, modernizing and making the coal industry more effective. But um, he had his fingers in a lot of pies and, like I said, Margaret picked up the mantle and in some ways, she went even further than her father in terms of industry. So by 1919, so three years after her father had resigned the directorships, she was sitting on 33 boards and she was chairing seven of them. She held more directorships than any other woman in the UK in the 1920s. And she was, she was globally recognised as, you know, this amazing international businesswoman um the new york times in 1927 called her the foremost woman of the british empire and what makes it amazing is a she's doing it while you know world war one is on b she is very much a woman in a man's world as well especially the all these heavy industries like 
coal and so forth. Um, she was very, very much a woman in a man's world. Like women, at this time, women weren't even members of stock exchanges. They couldn't go into gentlemen's clubs, all these places where business were done. But technically, Margaret couldn't go there. But the one thing about World War One is that the absence of men, men had gone off to war, and many men, unfortunately, didn't come back. This absence of men made others a little bit more accepting of women in business, a little bit more accepting of women filling that, those holes, if you will. But yeah, she had interests all over the world, in America, in Canada. She owned or she partially owned newspapers and journals, including Welsh language publications. Global, she was involved in global shipping companies, insurance. Like there is not a pie that Margaret did not have her finger in, if you excuse the expression. She was an amazing businesswoman. I, I really don't know how she did it all. And to top up all that, in 1926, she became the first and to this date the only female president of the Institute of Directors. That is probably one of her crowning achievements in terms of her business life. She was unanimously voted in and she went back in as um, president again the next year. She was president for a decade in total of this very prestigious business membership organisation. In terms of being a businesswoman, she was the leading businesswoman of the Western Hemisphere. So she created opportunities for women to get into business and commerce. And she was a strong advocate of women in the workplace. She really wanted to keep the opportunities that war had bought women. So she founded something called the Women's Industrial League. And um, she became its president, naturally. And that, that sort of equal training and employment opportunities for women in industry. But there's countless stories of all these organisations and um, chamber, like she was one of the first members of the London Chamber of Commerce. There's all these amazing little stories of what she did to facilitate other women in the world and how she broke the mould in terms of getting membership of new organisations or new roles. It, it would take it would take a very very long time to list all of her achievements in the business world because there were so so many um she was just amazing yeah I also wonder she must have had a magnetic personality she seems to be really good at connecting with people understanding the needs and then leading them yes yeah she must have been it's it's, it's hard to say that actually like Considering her, her lifespan, like she passed away, she didn't pass away until 1958. And I must, so I must have never seen any like video coverage of it, like video footage, because that would be amazing to see her actually interact with another person. Because you do, you do get those really charismatic X Factor people in history, don't you? The ones that are the natural leaders and the natural communicators. And it strikes me that Margaret must have been one of those in order to achieve this volume of achievements she must have been a very very special lady we've talked a bit about the world war one was she active still during world war two did she do any other things in then she wasn't so much active at world war two um after world war one um like i said she had a business empire and she started to kind of diversify her interests as well and she actually picked a bit of a, a bit of a passion project i think we would call it now so um in 1920, she founded um, kind of a, a weekly periodical called Time and Tide. And um, it was a weekly review sort of magazine, an opinion paper. 
uh, it was, um, you know, very much focused on modern culture, democracy, but it was very much women focused as well, about equal rights for women. And she created this amazing board and company full of contemporary female businesswomen and thinkers to oversee, you know, this really quite radical, distinctive interwar weekly publication. And it was very much, um, I suppose looking back, it was very much unexpected because you've got this massive, big international businesswoman tipping her toe into, you know, this really cultural world. It's like very much like a lady of two halves in some in some in some respects. So this magazine, it was, it's really interesting. I believe if there's any listeners based in Britain, I think um, I want to say the London School of Economics are doing a exhibition on this specific magazine or, or on interwar weekly periodicals. It was due for later on this year, but I know that they'll specifically be looking at the influence and the impact of Time and Tide which was established by Margaret. It covered like some really, the really pressing contemporary issues for women. So really meaty subjects looking at like, you know, um, housing quality, illegitimacy, you know, really, really gritty subjects. And they also did those book reviews as well. And they, and they had a massive group of what we would now call celebrity supporters. So you had people like, T.S. Eliot writing for them, T.S. Eliot who wrote Cats, D.H. Lawrence, George Bernard Shaw, you know, and it was one of the first periodicals in the UK to publish the work of black writers. It really was groundbreaking in that way. And this really was Margaret's passion project. She poured her own money into it to the extent her accountants had to go like, look, Margaret, you are, you are seriously getting close to the line now of being you know of going under and being being broke even though you are um, a viscountess by this point so I I find it amazing that this hard-headed businesswoman can also be this kind of cultural leader as well it's it's not often you get a woman being successful or anyone not just a woman anyone being so successful into such contrasting fields and as I mentioned I should have I should have mentioned earlier so unfortunately um, Margaret's father passed away in 1918 I think it was in yes 1918 and um, basically his job as um, controller of food during the war basically he'd worked he'd worked so hard it basically sent him to an early grave unfortunately so Lady Rhonda succeeded to to his title in July 1918, and it was very. It's interesting to note that she actually got the title in the first place because it wasn't it wasn't necessarily passed down to to female children. It wasn't necessarily the done thing. But when her father was made Viscount Rhonda by the king, he'd specifically asked if he could have um if he could pass his title on to his daughter Margaret by special attainder. And because the king had a good relationship with the future Viscount Ronda and respected him, he, he said, yes, yes, I, I, I will make that, um, I'll make that allowance for you and your daughter. Um, so as well as doing all this, Margaret was now, um, now a peer of the realm as well. Uh, there's definitely not a dull moment in her life. <laughs> Absolutely. It seems as though her legacy wasn't necessarily children it seemed as though her legacy was all of these social and cultural changes 
her legacy in terms of women's rights and putting women's first it is it is so impressive like i've said throughout this she fought at every opportunity for women to make inroads in some way but in terms of the world today and the world that people living here in the uk see probably one of the biggest legacies that she left this modern world is she's basically the main reason why female peeresses now sit in the House of Lords over here. And for anyone that doesn't know, the House of Lords is like our second chamber in the UK, where peers and non-elected, like chosen people go to comment on, on legislation and so forth. But for many years, women were not allowed, uh, were not allowed to take their seats in this second chamber in the House of Lords. And as soon as Margaret received her title after her father's death, she said, I'm, I'm going to petition the king. I want to receive a writ of summons to Parliament, like other new peers of the realm, like other male peers of the realm. And I want to take my seat in the House of Lords. And, and given her track record, you know, that probably wasn't surprising <laughs> to a lot of people. Um, so she petitioned the House of Lords to hear her case. And um, in March 1922, it brought before a committee and um, they decided, to, you know, to grant her the right to to receive her at a summons to sit in the House of Lords. And this was a major deal in the women's rights movement, in the women's rights world. This was a major breakthrough. But unfortunately, the establishment at the time, there were some key players in Parliament who didn't like this, who didn't like this major change. And it's inexcusable, but you can see it from their point of view. Like the world had changed a lot for men since World War One. And it's like I said, it's inexcusable, but you could probably see that in their eyes, Margaret was a threat to their traditional male establishment coming so soon as well after, you know, the threat of World War One. And so they made up some like some, some rules and said that, you know, actually, you've got to go back to committee for privileges again for reconsideration. But then they enlarged the membership and they put members in it who totally and utterly tore Margaret apart and were totally against her. And um, they said, well, your male heirs can take up their place in the House of Lords, but you can't. And they rejected the claim. So they did a total and utter U-turn, bent the committee process to their whim and chucked Margaret's claim back out, basically, which must have been a major kick in the teeth for such um, strong, independent women. And basically, she spent the rest of her life the majority of the rest of her life fighting for that right to sit as a peer in the House of Lords. I can't imagine how she must felt she must have felt about it. So it didn't happen until 1958. The Life Peerages Act of 1958 finally gave provision for women to be created lords on the same terms as men. So as I said, Margaret spent the majority of her life fighting to take her place as an hereditary peer in the House of Lords, which you can't imagine what it would have been like for a woman like Margaret. And it did eventually happen, but it didn't even materialise until after Margaret had unfortunately passed away. So in 1958, they created something called the Life Peerages Act, and this finally gave 
provision for women to be created lords on the same terms as men. However, there was a bit of a difference here. Margaret was an hereditary peer. She'd inherited her title from her father, and that supposedly gave her the right to sit in the House of Lords. This new Life Peerages Act only gave that right to newly created peers, so not hereditary peers, newly created peers are created by, by the government of the day and so forth. So there was a bit of a difference there about the type of female peers that could sit in, um, could sit in the House of Lords. So this new bill, this Life Peerages Act, this was given royal assent in April 1958, allowing these new created female peers to sit in the House of Lords. Margaret died three months later, and towards the end of July 1958. And then the public announcement about these new female life peers that could go sit in the House of Lords, these four new female life peers, was literally made the day before her funeral. That's terrible. I know, I know. She knew the act had been passed. She knew it didn't affect her because she was a hereditary peer. But she, I'm guessing, given her track record, she would have celebrated the fact that it was a victory. You know, those women, despite whatever type of peerage they had in the House of Lords, I'm pretty confident she would have been a supporter of that. But hereditary peeresses, so a peeress like Margaret was, she was only given, those, these type of peerages were only given the right to sit in the House of Lords by their own hereditary right. That wasn't given until 1963. So that's another five years later in the Peerages Act. And it's not a coincidence that at that time, Britain was trying to sign up to the UN Convention on the Political Rights of Women. And the fact that hereditary peeresses couldn't sit in the House of Lords was a bit of a stumbling block to them signing up to this UN Convention. And so that's what prompted them to finally do something about it, which is a bit of a bad reason. Yeah. I still feel, though, as though Margaret really got everything started. I mean, just her application and her saying she had a right to do so, she must have really been that catalyst that sort of led the right way. She did not let it drop. She spent her life fighting for it, and she campaigned 40 years nearly nearly 40 years to get what was due to her. But it's really nice to know that her portrait now hangs in the middle of the peers' dining room in the Houses of Parliament over here. And it's surrounded by portraits of, of the former Lord Chancellors and other great and good. And it's like, so she, her portrait hangs in the dining room of the Houses of Parliament, in the House of Lords, the Houses of Parliament. And she's centre stage. And I'm like, it's some sort of recognition, a belated recognition that, you know, she did make that difference and she was entitled to that seat, even though the men at the time said no. And I really kind of like the fact that, you know, she's there now, keeping an eye on them, making sure they're doing what they should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'm happy that she did get recognition, even if it's posthumously. Yes, and it's it's interesting because whenever I talk about this wonderful lady, there's not many people that know that much about her. She's really underappreciated and underrecognized, despite all the amazing achievements of the life and the fact she really devoted her life to both public service and and the cause of women and women's rights. It's interesting to think about why she's not recognized and why isn't she as famous as you know, the other suffragettes as 
as other female political figures. And I must admit, I haven't quite, I've got some reasons in the back of my head, but I can't quite explain it why she has been overlooked after giving her whole life for really noble causes. Absolutely. Well, that's, I guess that's a good end point uh, for her life story. So you had shared a fun fact with me uh, when I had questioned you at first, and I'd love it if you could actually share that story with everybody. Okay, uh, this one always makes people stop in their tracks. I've actually uh, swam with sharks in the past. They were only about 10 feet long, I say only, but um, that always gets uh, the conversation going at parties. (laughs) Yeah. How did you come to swimming with sharks? I was on holiday in Mexico and... Yeah, that's where I swam with them. And I also, I, I managed to fit a lot into that holiday. I swam with sharks. I swam with, you know, turtles, the giant sea turtles. And I did um, stingrays as well. So, yeah, I really threw myself into that Mexico holiday. <laughs> yeah, you definitely got your money's worth for sure. <laughs> and I like to ask this question. If you had a time machine and you could go somewhere, and of course the sanitary conditions are good, Is there somebody, it can be Lady Rhonda, but it doesn't have to be, somebody, some event or something in that line and who and where and what would it be? Oh, I know this is, this is probably a really, a really unentertaining answer for your listeners, but I never got to meet either of my grandfathers. Um, They both passed away before I was born and I've always, always, you know, just wondered what they were like and what their personalities were like and what they were like as people. So I would go back to before I was born, a good couple of years before I was born. So because my mother's father passed away when she was 14. So that would have been in, oh, I'm trying to do my maths now. That would have probably been the early 70s. So yeah, probably I'd go back to the early 70s so I could meet both of my grandparents my grandfathers and see what they were like as men that's incredible yeah I didn't know my grandparents either they they passed away before I was born also I I understand it'd be great to hear the stories and to understand more about your own family and culture that's a great answer you I meet so many people who go like older people remember oh I remember your granddad he was xyz you know he was a lovely person he was like this and I'm like I just I'd love to, if the technology existed, if the time machine existed, I'd love to find that out for myself. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think many of us would love to meet our ancestors at some point. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess I can say thank you. I mean, this was very informative and very fascinating. She is definitely underappreciated. And I think, and I hope that somebody's going to get interested and perhaps maybe just research a little more on Lady Rhonda's life and understand, you know, what kind of contribution she has made in history. So thank you very much for sharing this with us. You're welcome. And I'd say if there's anyone out there listening, this lady deserves a film about her life. I mean, she survived a torpedo. What more do I have to say, really? (laughs) The the special effects team could have a lot of fun with that, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much, Claire. I had never really heard of Lady Rhonda, and her life is simply fascinating. 
As you said, she survived a torpedo. How come she doesn't have a movie yet? The book recommendation today is Turning the Tide, The Life of Lady Rhonda by Angela V. John. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at History A. You can also check out the website, historya.com, and send me a message. I love hearing from you. If you have a moment, I would really appreciate it if you rated the podcast. This helps people find me, and it's a huge help. Thank you for the time you spend in doing so. I also want to thank my husband Jamie and our brood of kids, our family, our friends, all the great teachers I've had. Without you, I would definitely not be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.